I'm going to start this episode with a personal story, actually two personal stories. In 1996, in January, precisely, January 16th, I was a third year resident at my hospital in Brooklyn, New York. And I was pregnant and scheduled to deliver my daughter by C-section because she was a breach. On the day of the surgery, I was nothing by mouth, that's NPO, all day. I'd walked across the street from my apartment to the hospital to get prepared for the scheduled C-section waited the entire day, maybe at about 1 p.m. after being NPO for more than 12 hours. Somebody remembered that maybe I needed an intravenous infusion. So I think between 1 and 3 p.m., if my memory serves me right, an IV was put in and we continued to wait. Well, finally, at about 5 p.m., um, the surgery was confirmed to be scheduled for another hour in an hour. That's at six or shortly before six at 6 3 PM. I delivered my daughter by C-section. I had a spinal anesthesia placed and was awake and delivered. My daughter heard her, um, cry. And then she was taken to nursery while the surgery was completed. Shortly after the surgery, maybe about um, approximately maybe about an hour after the surgery, I was with my friends um, because my then husband was too busy to attend the birth of his daughter. Now, that's another story for another time. I'm very transparent in sharing that I at the time was in a very emotionally abusive marriage. So it was no surprise that he did not have time to be there for the birth of his daughter, because according to him, I should have scheduled the C-section when he could, when he was off during the Christmas. He was a, a chemical engineering professor in upstate New York, and I was doing my residency in Brooklyn, New York. But that's beside the point. So there I was with my colleagues who were nice enough to be with me. Um, for the birth of my daughter. My sister had actually also flown in from London. So there we were like, you know, shortly after shooting the breeze. And I was like, oh my goodness, this was, you know, just a walk in the park. I mean, I had no idea C-section was going to be so easy. And then all of a sudden I felt this burning, searing pain in my lower abdomen. And all I could remember saying was, "Uh Oh, I'm in pain. I'm in pain. I'm in pain. It was a burning searing pain. Like I was being opened up again. And the next thing I know, I went into delirium and the residents, because my attending doctors had left the hospital at the time. So this was probably about seven or 8 PM. They had left. And so the residents uh, began to order IV Demerol, which made me go into more delirium. And then probably 
at this time, I don't I don't know the time sequence, but I do recall them saying she's hemorrhaging, she's hemorrhaging, she's hemorrhaging, and we're going to have to go into OR and take out her uterus. And all I could remember saying was, please don't take out my uterus, please don't take out my uterus. And, um, you know, I was bleeding uh, heavily. And then I don't remember much more until the next morning. A day later, as I had been instructed to walk in order to reduce the incidence of clots in the legs, I'm walking the ward and I'm extremely short of breath. And my attending physician asked me, hey, Eno, do you feel short of breath? Do you feel exhausted? I'm like, yes, I'm so exhausted. And my hemoglobin had dropped to six. And there was no mention of the postpartum bleeding. There was no mention in the chart of any of the events that happened following my C-section, the birth of my daughter. So I was the one filling in the gaps like, hey, this is what I remember. I remember I was in a lot of pain. And then I went into delirium, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Come to find out that that was not the normal experience of any woman going through a C-section. I was made to understand that the anesthesiologist should have injected morphine into the spinal canal prior to pulling out the needle. So this was stuff I was being educated on later on after my C-section, after wondering why did this all happen? So what do you think I did after my maternity leave was over? Remember, this was the hospital where I had, I was doing my residency and I delivered my daughter. I went to meet with the anesthesiologist, with the anesthesia resident. I think she was a senior resident. And I told her what my experience was and I told her how traumatized I was. And you know what her response was? Wow, you never told me that I should inject morphine. You should have told me that. Now, just to give you a perspective, I was an internal medicine resident and not an anesthesia resident. I was not trained in anesthesia. And I remember looking at her dumbfounded and I just turned and I walked away. And you know what? I promised I would never, ever, ever go through that kind of pain again. I was so traumatized that I decided I was not going to have another baby again because the chances of me ending up with a C-section were high because I'd had one already, right? And she was a breach. And I kept that promise. Yes, my second marriage, I did try to get pregnant again, but those were unsuccessful at God's will. But that haunted me. Every subsequent surgery I went under, I always took the time to speak directly to the anesthesiologist. I wasn't concerned about the surgery. I was more concerned about the anesthesiologist. And I would tell them the story of my C-section. Could this be an incident of racial disparity affecting your medical care? Probably. More on that later.
The second story I want to share with you happened about a little over eight years ago. I was diagnosed with cervical cancer in 2012. And based upon the stage, it was early. The decision was made to pursue a hysterectomy, robotic assisted hysterectomy. I had a PET scan prior to surgery and discussions with my attendant were that if there was no evidence of spread of the cancer, that we would just go with the hysterectomy. If there was suggestion of spread, i.e. to the lymph nodes, then we would go with a BSO, which is a bilateral salping ophrectomy, which is, which is where you remove the ovaries. Well, I had the PET scan a little less than a week, I believe, before the surgery. And I, you know, I was told that if there was any abnormality, I would be contacted by the surgeon. Otherwise, that was a plan we would go ahead with. On December the 4th, 2012, I arrived at the hospital for my surgery. Again, nothing by mouth, nothing since the previous evening. I arrive and I'm sitting in the preoperative area, dressed in the hospital gown, and in walks a young white resident, let's call her Becky. And Becky proceeds to tell me that, hello, this is who I am, and you're scheduled today for a TAH and a BSO. This is what Becky said to me, okay? A TAH and a BSO. Now, I don't think Becky knew I was a physician. So I'm looking at her like, what do you mean by TAH and a BSO? I'm not having a BSO. And she said, yes, you are. And I said, no, I'm not. And she said, yes, you are. And I said, no, I'm not. And when she said, yes, you are the third time, I said, hang on a minute. I'm a physician and I had a discussion with my attending physician. I demand that you go get him right now. Becky ran out looking very flustered and got my attending physician. And we had a meeting of minds, which was that no, I was not having a BSO, that is the bilateral salpingo oophorectomy, because my PET scan did not show any evidence of spread of the cancer. Now, imagine Becky walks in and says, TH and BSO, right? To a lay person. You don't know what that is, do you? Becky speaking medical lingo. Fortunately, I could speak medical lingo back. But imagine if I had not advocated for myself and been able to stand up to Becky and tell her categorically that I demanded to speak with my attending physician, could they possibly have taken out my ovaries just because it was convenient? These are thoughts that we'll discuss in memory of a colleague, Dr. Susan Moore, who was not so fortunate a month ago, despite wanting to advocate for herself as she lay sick from COVID-19 and a white physician decided against her plan of care. And despite her pleas to receive remdesivir, which 
had been approved by the FDA for emergency use authorization for COVID-19 patients that I'm sure Dr. Susan Moore treated during the course of her career. This was denied to her. She lay in pain, crying for pain meds. And guess what? They never really arrived because according to the CEO, from what I read a few days ago, she was noted to be intimidating to the nursing staff. Dr. Susan Moore lost her life. In this episode of Thriving Wild Golden, we're going to discuss racial disparities and how they impact Black and brown people. Sit back and let's have a discussion. I'm going to read from an article from the NIH. And the topic of the article, the title of the article is Understanding and Addressing Racial Disparities in Healthcare. And it is by uh, Dr. David R. Williams, PhD, MPH, and Tony Rocker, PhD. And I found this article to encompass a lot of what we can discuss here. In fact, I'm just going to use this article because I think it, it really gives a capsule to what I'm going to discuss here as it related to my experience and also as it related to the experience of Dr. Susan Moore of Blessed Memory. First of all, um, the article talks about the fact that we need to understand racial disparities within the context of inequities in societal institutions and the fact that these disparities affect the quality of care that is received by black and brown people, i.e. black and Hispanic people, even after addressing for socioeconomic status, insurance, etc. Now, we do agree that over the last 50 years, the life in expectancy of both black and white people has increased and there has been a decline in infant adult mortality. However, black persons continue to have higher rates of morbidity and mortality, in other words, death or illness compared to white people when it comes to those metrics. Hispanics and American Indians also have elevated disease and death rates for multiple conditions. And then we talk about the access to care, which is something that is critical when it comes to access to insurance, access to a physician, depend upon geographic areas and also insurance ability. So there are definitely differentials when it comes to racial and ethnic um, ethnicity in terms of the quality and the quantity of care that a person is likely to receive if they are black or brown. So compared to white persons, black persons and other minorities have lower levels of access to care in the United States. This is, this is the truth and this is felt to be due to the higher rates of unemployment and underrepresentation in good paying jobs. Although, as you can see, that's not always the case, especially when interacting with another person of color within the healthcare system. So there's another important thing that was highlighted in this article and which I personally um, happened to encounter with a colleague a number of years ago. And I, I had heard this 
that in the training, in, in medical school training, there, there's this myth that Black people or uh, his, uh, Latina people, Latinx people, do not perceive, do not ha have a high pain tolerance. And so compared to our white counterparts, which I'm beginning to think is what happened to me, remember when I spoke about my C-section, compared to our white counterparts, we're not likely to receive adequate anesthesia. Now, this was something that I just found out um, just a couple of years ago. And it made me stand back like, oh my goodness, they, the teaching or the myth is that we don't perceive pain, like somehow we are more tolerant of pain. So compared to a white person who may get a narcotic, that's, you know, some hydrocodone or some codeine for pain, we're likely to just get a Tylenol and some ibuprofen. Huh, go figure. So th this article goes on to talk about the fact that, you know, observers are perplexed. I, I have no idea why. May maybe it's just a way of, of trying to place a Band-Aid. Like, why are they perplexed about these disparities that exist? And what is it most importantly that we can do about these disparities? What is it that we can take on to highlight these disparities. If somebody like Dr. Susan Moore was unable to advocate for herself with a white doctor who felt that he had the right to discharge her or threatened to discharge her at 10 p.m. on a Saturday night, which by the way, I work as a hospitalist and that is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. I've never discharged a patient late at night unless they demanded to be discharged. And most times that's really not the case. Why would you discharge a patient with COVID-19? Why would you even threaten to discharge a patient with COVID-19 at 10 p.m. at night without completing her course of remdesivir? I think the bottom line, especially in this case of Dr. Susan Moore, was that it amounted to a power dynamic. It amounted to just as the CEO had reported, she was intimidating a sick black doctor lying in a hospital bed in Carmel, Indiana, which by the way, happens to be what listed as one of the top 10 places to live in the United States by Money Magazine and has had that high listing for a number of years. How dare Dr. Susan Moore? arrive at an IU health center in Carmel, Indiana, as a black woman, as a minority. And these are things that we need to constantly shine the light on so that they're not thrown and pushed and shoved underneath the rug. And we may speak about it for a few weeks and then we go silent. Imagine this. If Dr. Susan Moore and myself and several other, there are several other cases of physicians, educated women dying during childbirth. There are so many cases that do not make sense. If this happens to so-called educated middle-class folk, think about what's happening to those who are 
who have less access to care, who by the time they access care, they 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 don't have anybody to advocate for them and they're scared of advocating for themselves. They're scared of asking questions, right? Because they don't want to rock the boat because, hey, you know, they perceive the physician who rightfully so appears to be in a position of power. They don't want to counter that. That's one of the reasons why we have these disparities. That's the main reason why Dr. Banner, and yes, just in case you haven't heard the story, his name is Dr. Banner, B-A-N-N-E-R. And just, you know, do a search on Facebook and you'll see Dr. Susan Moore's Facebook Live. She had to go live on Facebook to advocate for herself. She was discharged from that hospital and had to be readmitted, I think, barely within 48 hours and died subsequently in another hospital. She was even scared to go to the original hospital. But you know what? That's not an isolated incident. That's not an isolated story. That goes on and on and on. And until we can become empowered enough to advocate for ourselves, until we can have those who advocate for us, this will continue in our society. So back to this article, which I'm, I'm still reading from, I'm going to quote here. The larger literature on societal discrimination suggests that although racism has changed over time from a blatant Jim Crow racism, in quote, to a more subtle laissez-faire racism, it persists in contemporary America. As painful as it may be to acknowledge, we must begin with the recognition that discrimination is routine and commonplace in society and likely to be similarly prevalent in medicine. Now, why is this important, especially now in this current environment of the COVID pandemic and the rollout of vaccines? Remember the historical Tuskegee, Alabama syphilis experiment? Is it any wonder that Black folk are still leery of the medical establishment? despite people like me going on social media and showing you that I took my vaccine? Is it any wonder that we still have a huge mistrust of the establishment? And what is it that we can do to, what is it that society can do? Not us. What is it that society can do to allay our anxieties? Now, Let's come full circle to the COVID-19 pandemic and the fact that yes, just as with most other chronic illnesses, black and brown people are disproportionately affected by the pandemic, again, due to the same determinants as with other chronic illnesses. In other words, black and brown people have a high instance of type two diabetes and high blood pressure and other diseases that put them at risk uh, are, are high determinants for putting people at risk for hospitalization with COVID-19. And so when it comes to the issue of the vaccine, we have to ask ourselves, could this be, could this be 
a turning point where we do trust the establishment, where we do trust that the establishment has our best interests in mind. Now, I'm going to discuss the vaccine and why I took the vaccine in a subsequent episode. But again, speaking about racial disparities, especially when it comes to healthcare, I just have to highlight that probably the hesitancy of people of color to take the vaccine just has to do with the historical relationship that we have had with the medical establishment anyway. And again, we have to ask ourselves, I'm just shining the light. I don't have an answer to this. I'm recording this episode because I want to shine a light and let you know that anytime you feel that maybe you're being discriminated up, uh, off, uh, um, you're being discriminated on in a medical establishment, if you even have that inkling that this is happening, it probably is. Because remember, I as a physician experienced it, right? I had Becky telling me I was gonna get a TAH and a BSO. And we had Dr. Susan Moore, and we've had several other physicians fall prey, die after childbirth. Again, because of our encounter with a medical establishment that feels somehow, just, just, just like the article said, a laissez-faire approach to racism. You know, maybe Dr. Banner didn't feel that he was being racist. After all, made to understand that his reviews have sucked for years. That's just been the way he operates, right? But the consequence was racist. The loss of a black female physician who had probably taken care of many COVID-19 patients and probably had gotten COVID from occupational exposure was racist. The fact that Becky could tell me in medical lingo, not even knowing that I was a physician, speaking to me, you're going to TAH and a BSO. Hey, what if I didn't understand that? And I said, yes. Becky would document that she had obtained informed consent from me. You know what informed consent is before operation? It is that the procedure was outlined in a way that the patient could understand. But you know what? Becky didn't know as a physician when she bobbed in to tell me that I was getting a TH and a BSO. So these are some contact points that we have with the medical establishment where it's presumed or we're being spoken over to. So if that were to happen to you, if you have an encounter with any healthcare provider and you don't understand fully what is being told to you, first of all, politely ask them to repeat themselves and repeat it in a way that you understand. And if you still don't get your questions answered, there's something called, oh, there's somebody called a patient advocate that you can ask for. Now, this is usually in a the hospital, there's a, a patient advocate or a larger institution or a larger healthcare organization, there's a patient advocate that you can ask for. If you're in an office, 
a, a private office, you can ask to speak with the office manager, for instance. If you if you're if you're in a one man physician practice, take your stuff and run. I think a lot of times when it comes to healthcare decisions, we feel that we are a slave to our insurance and that whoever it is that our insurance assigns us is the person that inevitably we are bound to. That is not true. I constantly educate my patients that if you, it, it's just it's just like a relationship. It's, it's just like dating. If you have bad chemistry with your physician or your healthcare provider, if, if things don't necessarily click, the first thing you need to do is look for somebody who understands you. Okay. You need to do your due diligence. That's being the, that's the first point of being an advocate for yourself. It's looking for somebody who understands you, who gets you and who you connect with. And you may have to do some legwork even within the insurance model. But I guarantee you that if you do extra work, you're going to eventually find the person who clicks with you. And guess what? It may not necessarily be another person of color. It may truly be a white person. I'm, I'm not here to promote this, you know, racist, we must stay amongst ourselves. Although I'd love to take care of my black and brown people as my patients and my clients. But I'm not, this is not what this is about. This is about educating black and brown people and other minorities to make sure that they advocate for themselves, that they don't feel that they're tied in to their insurance just because their insurance says, oh, you've been assigned to Dr. XYZ. If you don't have good chemistry with Dr. XYZ, do the legwork, ask questions, ask for recommendations and get yourself a good physician. In fact, I'm gonna post in the show notes an article that I had written a couple of years ago about, you know, the things you need to look for when you're looking for a good physician. So I'm going to end here. I really wanted to record this particular podcast episode in memory of Dr. Susan Moore, because when I heard of what happened to her, not that I, I haven't heard about what's happened to other physicians or other people who have unfortunately lost their lives and, and you wonder why. But when I heard about what happened to her, what happened to me was that it triggered my past encounters with the medical establishment as a patient and actually helped shift it. Because initially I was like, oh, well, yeah, I mean, stuff happens, right? Like, okay, well, you know, I had a baby a couple a number of years ago, 25 years ago, and I had a terrible experience and I've made sure subsequently that I've always told any anesthesiologist what happened to me. And I, you know, I really looked them in the eye and uh, stuff happened, but it helped put that in perspective for me that it, it wasn't just an, I, I was not just looked upon as, you know, an individual, I was probably looked upon as a black woman who didn't need extra pain medications because perhaps this anesthesia resident had it in her that or had been taught that black people don't really feel pain and that put me at risk of losing my uterus number one and losing half a pint half of my blood half of my blood i went into surgery with a hemoglobin of 12 i came out with the hemoglobin of six so that's half of my blood and i refused a blood transfusion so it helped put that in perspective. And then 
also help put in perspective that when Becky walked in and said, hey, you're going to TH and, and a BSO, probably Becky did not think too much about doing a BSO in a female, in a black female, because, hey, what was a big deal in taking out the, the ovaries, right? Uh, apart from forcing me into forced menopause, uh, it, it probably is no big deal because that's what's done to black people. The procedure is not explained fully. And I'm not saying this doesn't happen to white people, but this particular episode is about racial disparities. And this is the way I subsequently was able to look at my experiences through the lens of race. I'd welcome your comments, but more importantly, I'd encourage you to advocate for yourself. And if you're in a position where you can't advocate for yourself, have somebody advocate for you. If you don't understand stuff, ask. If you're not getting your questions answered, move on to somebody who will get you those questions answered. That's the only way we're going to thrive. That's the truth. I can't sit here and talk about thriving while golden to your golden years. And yet you're being burdened by chronic illness, chronic disease, because nobody's answered your questions. And if you truly want a partner in this journey, if you're somebody who's looking and has been searching and you're finally at a point where you want answers, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. And I'm putting that out here because I don't sit down on these podcasts and record them just because I love to hear my voice. I want to be of service. I want to be of service to as many people that I can be of service to. So if you're somebody out there who feels that your questions aren't getting answered and is in the depths of a chronic disease, chronic illness, have an area of concern, and you would like to schedule a discovery call with me, go ahead and do so. I'll post the link to contact me for discovery, a free discovery call in the show notes. And to learn more about me, you can go to my website, dreno.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-E-N-O.com. And if you have any comments or feedback, send me an email at info at dreno.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode or any other episodes, please leave us a five-star review on your favorite platform. We'd appreciate it. Until next time, this is Dr. Eno saying, thrive on, be safe, wear a mask, wash your hands, and watch your distance. We'll get through this together. Goodbye.